Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... One thing really interesting in looking at this experience is that despite the fact the public health response in many ways was so poor and we had so many people dying and it was that terrible, is that the economic policy response, for whatever reason, was much better. And so you did at least partly break the link that one might have expected from those two things. Matt Klein explains the U.S. economy in one lesson. Hey, everybody. A quick note before we start today's show. We taped this episode on Thursday, November 4th. That was last week. And that was a day before the government released its labor market report for the month of October. Now, nothing in that report changes any of the analysis or the conclusions that you're going to hear in today's episode, but a few of the specific numbers you'll hear, especially with regard to the labor market, will be slightly different from the latest data, and we just thought you should know about it. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. I am actually going to skip the usual intro essay to start the podcast because this episode is actually more of a collaboration than it is a formal interview. So I'm just going to introduce our guest, Matt Klein. Hey, man, how are you? Good, Cardiff. How are you? Earlier this year, as of earlier this year, you were the chief economics commentator, I believe, at Barron's Magazine, and you left to do something totally new. So tell us about that first. That's right. So I'd been at Barron's for a bit over three years, and I was given a very interesting idea of basically going independent and launching my own subscription research newsletter. And I did. A Substack. Yeah, Yeah. Substack. Yeah. It's called The Overshoot. And anyone should, you know, come by and check it out. Hopefully subscribe. Yeah, definitely subscribe. But tell us about The Overshoot itself, what that stands for, the title, because this is a really interesting concept and relevant to today's show. So my first piece was looking at what I think is probably the most interesting chart if we're trying to understand the U.S. economy since the end of World War II, which is that the average American consistently produced about, you know, 2% more goods and services each year over time. Obviously, there's a lot of variation, but in general, pretty stable trend. Then you have the financial crisis, and you can have a complete break from this trend. That was 2008 and 2009, the big recession that hit in the wake of the great financial crisis. So you're describing what happened right after that period. That's right. And basically, the downturn itself was big, but what was really unusual is that the growth afterwards was exceptionally weak. And so instead of getting back to this longer-term trend— the gap just got bigger and bigger, and it was something on the on the order before the pandemic of like 16% below where it otherwise would have been, which is enormous amounts of, of money and that we've essentially left on, on the table. Now, that's an undershoot. And so the idea of, of the name of the piece, the uh, The, the substack, the title the substack, of the yeah, substack. The substack yeah, of the, yeah, which, I, you know, you and I actually talked about. What you're about. <laughs> right. When, you know, you and I actually, you know, did some good, very good brainstorming before, you know, for deciding on this, which is, you know, we need to actually try doing something the other way. Instead of consistently being sort of below this line, why don't we try to go full tilt and see just how much stuff we're able to produce and, and consume and see how much we can get our living standards going up and, you know, maybe overshoot, see what yeah, happens. basically maybe we, we... go for it for a change exactly. instead of playing it safe. I mean, the, the basic idea here being that economic growth was really thrown off of its previous trajectory by the financial crisis. And then afterwards, 
policymakers and a lot of pundits underestimated how slowly the economy would recover. And this had real consequences for real people. This is not just a matter of it being 16% below the prior trend. That's very abstract. This was a problem because it meant that so many millions of people took a very long time to get employed again. Some people never did. Some people left the labor force out of frustration. And the economy not getting back to its previous trend means that there was a lot of real person suffering. So I love this concept that you're pursuing of the overshoot, that it's about time for policymakers to risk doing too much instead of doing what they had been doing for a decade, which was doing way too little. That's the way to characterize this, correct? Yes, absolutely. I love it. For this episode, we are doing something that I think is going to be really helpful, and it's that we are going to try to explain how the economy is doing now in the aftermath of the really deep recession that set in right after the COVID pandemic hit. And we've had this recovery to this point, but I just wanted to answer the question for our listeners, well, how are we doing now? And so I got in touch with you and we're doing kind of a collaborative thing. You've been kind enough to join the podcast and At the same time as people are listening to this podcast episode, they can go to your newsletter, The Overshoot, and they'll be able to see a kind of chart-based version of the things that we describe here today. So if they prefer text, that's great. But if not, I want this episode to be the one where if you know somebody, if you, the listener, knows somebody who keeps asking the question, how is the economy doing? And can you please explain it in plain, unadorned English? Where do I go? And I want this podcast episode and your newsletter post to be the places that people go to answer that question. Okay. So you and I are going to try to answer that question over the course of the next hour. And I want to emphasize that there's a reason that I got in touch with you in particular, Matt, and it's not just that I know you and world pals. You also happen to be, I think, the single best sleuth of economic data that I know. In other words, you have this really rare ability to dive into the data sets that are available, publicly available, but to emerge with crystal clear explanations and an understanding that I think most people are just totally incapable of doing. That is just my humble opinion, but this is also my podcast, so it's the opinion that counts. (laughs) So I don't know. uh, Would you call this the most ambitious crossover event in history? Yeah, I think Matt? it's yeah, definitely more than the other, what was it, the Avengers or whatever. Yeah, I think exactly. We're when our powers combine or whatever. I guess that's more of an, from our youth, but uh. <laughs> it's certainly uh, the most convenient crossover event yes. of the week. So, well, anyways, you and I, you and I do have a long history together. We worked together as colleagues at the Financial Times uh, before we went on our different respective paths. But it's great to be reunited, and I'm excited about this. Uh, are you ready? I am. I'm excited too. We're going to start by answering some really basic questions. Then we'll slowly and gently get into a little bit more detail. Okay, so here's the first thing I want to talk about, Matt, and it's with the highest possible level question. The economy produces a certain amount of goods and services every day, every quarter, every year. So to make this even more basic, if you go to get a haircut or you go to a restaurant or you stay at a hotel, you are buying services and the economy produces those services. Then there's goods. Obviously, you buy a car, you buy a tool set, you buy a gaming console, whatever. Those are goods. That's all very easy to understand. And every year, okay, the economy produces a certain amount of goods and services. So question number one, is the economy back to producing 
as much as it was before the pandemic hit. Yeah, actually, it's more. So that's kind of surprising, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you look at the the latest numbers we have are from, you know, July through September. And if you look at that compared to October through December 2019, these are available, you know, quarterly, it's about 1.6% more, or 1.4% more, excuse me, which is kind of surprising given everything that's going on in the world. Yeah, first you're talking about the last quarter of 2019, which was the last full quarter before the COVID pandemic arrived. Okay, and then you're comparing that to the most recent quarter for which we have the data, which is the third quarter of 2021. And you're saying that in the most recent quarter, we actually produced more than we did uh, in the last quarter before the pandemic and the associated recession. That's great, right? I mean, this is this is unexpected. This is a faster recovery, I think, than we had to the prior recession, you know, more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, the the amount of time it took just to get back to where we were in 2007 after that, I don't think, I think it took until like 2011 or something before we even just got back to that level. Uh, so this is much faster. I mean, we've yeah. already surpassed the previous level. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then there's there's a second question, and it's something you alluded to earlier when you were introducing the overshoot, which is we're not just concerned about whether or not the economy is back to producing as much as it has before. It is, and that's great. We also want to know, is the economy producing as much as it would have been if the pandemic had never hit? Was it able to get back to that earlier trend? Are we there yet? No. So, okay. uh, the good news is it's it's the gap is closed a lot. And again, we're doing a lot better than if we think about, you know, what happened after 2007. But if we take sort of the 2018, 2019 period as a baseline, we're about 2.7% or so below that if that trend had continued. So there's still room for improvement. So we're what we're really hoping for here is that we return at least back to the original trend. And frankly, it'd be great if we could catch up to the trend from before the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 also. But at a minimum, we're looking at the trend from right before the pandemic, and we hope to get back to it. We are not actually there yet. As impressive as the recovery to this point has been, we're not there yet. We've just gotten back to where we were before a little bit better, but we're not back to the trend. Okay, that's great. Next up, I want to turn to how the economy itself has changed. So it's not just about how much the economy produces, but it's sort of the mix of things that it makes. And there's been a lot of economic commentary and analysis that's concluded that the economy is reorienting itself relatively away from producing services and more towards producing goods. And the story there is that with services, it requires a lot of in-person contact, obviously, like going out to a restaurant or staying at a hotel or doing other things, you know, going to the theater that requires in-person contact. And so people are doing maybe less of that, relatively shifting away from that. And they're shifting more towards like buying goods because, of course, people were, you know, at home for quite a while. A lot of people started working from home. So they started buying goods to put in their house to make their houses a little bit more friendly. Um to what extent do we know if the economy has, in fact, shifted relatively away from services and towards goods? Is that something that's reflected in the data? Yeah. So basically, every month we get numbers on how much people are spending, consumers, on, on things for themselves. And what we've seen in general, so services is still the biggest category by far. It's you know still like around two-thirds or something, but... It's most of the economy, in other words. Yeah, it's it's definitely the majority. And that's because things like 
rent is is services, healthcare is services, you know, your streaming and your internet and I mean a lot of things are services. So that tends to be the majority. But there has been uh, basically ever since, you know, March of 2020 this big shift and it started with things like well people bought a lot more groceries compared to going out to a restaurant. But then it also and this is I think actually a healthy development which is that people still had money. And so even though a lot of things happened that were really traumatic and terrible, a lot of people died, we still had money. And so people were just spending it on different things, which isn't necessarily a given. I mean, there might have just been less money, and so you wouldn't have actually seen that kind of shift. But that's what happens. So people are buying new cars, they're buying exercise equipment, a lot of stuff. And that's generally been you know, pretty persistent. I mean, compared to before, we're seeing more spending on, on goods and home renovation and stuff compared to before and compared to what we've done in the past and services. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I want to emphasize a point that, that you just made almost in passing, um, which is that we're here on this podcast episode talking about just the economic trend. And in some sense, the economic trends are actually somewhat divorced from like the broader tragedy of what's happened, where hundreds of thousands of people have died. So many more have gotten sick. Uh, I don't want in any way to dismiss that. Um, but because this is an e- economic podcast, we're talking about the economic trend. And those things, those two things don't always line up, right? I think it's important to mention that. Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing really interesting in looking at this experience is that despite the fact the public health response in many ways was so poor and we had so many people dying and it was that terrible, is that the economic policy response, for whatever reason, was much better. And so you did at least partly break the link that one might have expected from those two things. Yeah, that's uh, incredibly important to, to stress. And in terms of the specific industries that have done better than we might have expected when the pandemic first struck and when the recession first hit and then the recovery started, you were looking at something called real value added, which is something that the uh, government does measure. It's a little tricky, you know, in, in measuring this sort of shift, this relative shift away from services and towards goods. This actually methodologically is not is not easy, but you looked at this specific measure and you found something kind of interesting about a couple of sectors. So can you kind of tell us what that measure is and what you found? Sure. So, I mean, one way of looking at how businesses are doing is you just look at how much stuff they sell. That's pretty easy right. to measure. The problem is that a lot of businesses sell stuff to each other. So if you added up all the sales in total, you're kind of double counting a lot of things. And so the idea of value add is, okay, let's subtract those between businesses sales and just look at what is each specific company or industry contributing to the economy as a whole. And unsurprisingly, manufacturing and construction are up a bit, sort of like 3% or so compared to before the pandemic and services is flat, which is interesting because services includes a bunch of things that actually did really well, right? So on the one hand, you have restaurants and live events and the movie theaters and stuff that have all done horribly. Restaurants are doing better now, but in general, right? I mean, that's sort of the intuitive thing. But services is a big category. It also includes things like home internet. It includes things like software. It includes uh, financial services of people paying, doing brokers and trading crypto or whatever. Like all of these things are also in services. And so you have basically includes delivery services. So a lot of things that have done well of offset things that have done poorly. So that, you know, partly explains why the services sector as a whole has done actually kind of okay, considering what happened with what we sort of been think of when we think about services. What did you find in terms of goods production, like manufacturing, construction? What is the story there? I think you said they're up about 3%. Should we consider that to be like an impressive figure? Give us a little bit of context on that. Mm. 
Yeah, I don't know if I would call it impressive. <laughs> I mean, I, I, again, like the, the context here is that compared to the end of 2019, the whole economy is up like one and a half percent or so, which is not great. I mean, if, if this had been the case, you know, if there had been no pandemic, you'd say that's kind of a disappointing growth performance. Given what we know happened, it's, it's remarkable. So, I mean, you know, whether we say it's good or, or, or not, I mean, it's, it's very contingent on those things. It seems like... Um What's notable there then, rather than saying that construction and manufacturing being up 3%, is that impressive or not? It seems like what's notable is that they are positive while the services sector is only flat, that like the majority of the U.S. economy is flat and there's this one part that is up. Whether or not it's up by enough that we should be impressed by it is a different question because like you said, relative to no pandemic happening, it would be sort of abysmally slow growth. Given that there was a pandemic and there was a very severe recession right after the pandemic started, you know, a recession that ended quite quickly but was very severe when it actually arrived, uh, I think we can say that this is maybe better than than a lot of people had expected back then. Let me also just ask uh, another question about a sector of the economy that again, has received a lot of attention in roughly the last year and a half because so many more people have come to rely on it, which is the general part of the economy that delivers goods to people's homes, right? So like call it the Amazon economy, call it the delivery economy, whatever it is, we know that people were buying a lot of stuff that they wanted brought to their homes relative to like going to stores because a lot of stores were also closed for in-person shopping. And so what can you tell us about how that part of the economy has done and sort of give us, give us again, a little bit of context for how we should regard it? So it's done phenomenally well, is basically, you know, in terms of the number of people <laughs> working simple, there, yeah. in terms of the number of people working in that sector, in terms of the overall value added by the sector, in terms of the pay of the people in that sector, this has been a huge growth story. I mean, the thing that's actually in some ways kind of interesting is that even as sort of conventional retails come back in many ways, and it's pretty close to, I mean, it's not all the way back, but it's a lot closer back to where it was. You haven't really seen a drop-off in, in warehousing, delivery, things of that nature. And so, yeah, it's definitely been huge. Uh, and, I mean, that's consistent with the fact that overall goods consumption has gone up so much. So, basically, it's not a situation right now, anyway, where delivery has cannibalized conventional retail. It's just additive. And in fact, the, the, the amount of stuff people are buying has gone up by even more than all of this. So it's, and we've actually seen efficiency gains because of these, these changes. Yeah. And you also, by the way, you sent a, a very helpful list of the services parts of the economy that have done particularly badly. Uh, passenger transportation, movies, law firms, schools, nursing homes, live events, casinos, and hotels. So pretty much exactly what you would sort of expect, right? These are the parts of the economy that, again, require a lot of person-to-person contact. And this is showing up in the data. They got hit especially badly. That's right. There's one kind of weird wrinkle on this, which is that there's another sector that initially was hit just as badly and makes sense, which is dentists. And yet, for some reason, unlike everyone else, dentists, at least in terms of employment, have they're one of the few that actually are employing more people now than before the pandemic, which is... I. I don't understand this. This is sort of an ongoing puzzle. If you look at separate data on like how much people are actually going to dentist's office as opposed to how much how many people are employed at dentist's office, like it's more normal, like down twenty percent or whatever. Why is employment up so much? I have no idea. But yeah, it's a that's sort of a weird wrinkle because that seems like an obvious thing. And initially it was where like nobody wanted to go to the dentist. Like why would you're worried about this highly contagious respiratory pandemic? You want to have someone looking in your in your mouth for forty five minutes. So that seems like very easy to cut back on. And yet, in many ways, the dental sector has come back 
much more strongly than a lot of An these economic others. mystery. Interesting. I wonder if maybe in the time of the pandemic when you couldn't go to a dentist at all, people just came to appreciate how important it is to take care of your teeth. <laughs> and now there's more demand for it, you know? I guess. I mean, I'll be honest. I've not been to the dentist since, like, you know, before the pandemic. But, you know. Oh, gross, man. Don't tell people that. Hey, I floss every day, though, so. But. <laughs> All right. Good, good. Uh, daily, good daily maintenance. You mentioned something uh, also that I found interesting, which is that this category of financial vehicles, I think is what it's called, uh, has has grown quite impressively. Is this because the stock market actually has done quite well since the start of the pandemic. Uh, and there have been other things happening too. What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, so this is a great example of like how it's kind of tough to necessarily measure what, it is, like what, what is it we're actually measuring here? But, you know, there's a category of businesses that's called funds, trusts, financial vehicles. That includes things like asset managers, trading platforms, whatever. In general, it tends to be the case that if stock prices go up a lot, that they're making more money. It also tends to be the case that if their fees go up a lot, they're making more money. I mean, there's stuff beginning of the year continuing, right? And all the you know people, whether it's GameStop or various cryptocurrencies or what have you, people are trading a lot more. People are trading a lot more in options where it's more profitable for these companies. So like, you, I think if you were to, I believe when I looked at this, like you look at all the different subsectors of the economy, I think this is actually the highest growth uh, relative to, you know, end of 2019 of, of any subcategory was was this one. You know, the long-term trend is not particularly great. I mean, if you look, go back to like 2000 or whatever, they're not doing phenomenally well compared to other sectors of the economy. But, you know, they've done a really good 18 months, uh, which is kind of interesting and surprising. Well, it is interesting and it is surprising, especially if you would have asked somebody in, I don't know, February or March as the pandemic was really taking hold in the U.S., whether this particular category of folks would have done really well in the subsequent year and a half I think most people would have said, no, this is going to be a huge disaster, you know, that this is this is going to be terrible for the economy and therefore it'll probably be terrible for the financial markets and thus for this category of people of, of the economy. And, and it turned out not to be the case. So that's fascinating. Well, listen, uh, we got a lot to get through. So let's move on and start talking about jobs and the labor market. And here's how I want to set this up. In February of 2020, so again, you know, the last sort of month before the pandemic really started taking hold, uh, there were 159 million people employed in the U.S. economy. Where are we now? So right now we're about 153 million, which is, you know. Down 6 million jobs still. And yeah, down 3.5%, 6 million. So it's a lot. Um, A lot better than it was, but yeah, that's a lot of people who are missing and who would rather presumably be able to be working and, and earning incomes. Absolutely. And uh, to give people just some sense of the trajectory here, in the early months of the pandemic, there were staggering numbers of jobs lost. I think there were something like 20 million jobs lost or something like that. 30 million. And since 30 million, right. So since then, there has been a recovery in people getting employed as parts of the economy have been able to open up over time and the economy itself has recovered. But Unlike overall economic production, okay, output, jobs have not come all the way back, which is disappointing, I think. But it's also a very complicated story. So I want to dig in a little bit into that story and get into the details. So let's start talking about the specific parts of the economy where the jobs lost have been concentrated. What do we know about that? It's basically where you'd expect. Uh, The biggest losses in percentage terms have been bars, restaurants, hotels, live entertainment, casinos, airlines, ground transit, daycares, movie studios, temporary help, that kind of thing. I should stress, though, that 
basically every sector of the economy is still operating with fewer people than before. It's really just a handful of exceptions where it's different, and that's things like high-end professional services like architecture, management consulting, or tech, or we were talking before about warehousing jobs and, and dentists, but these are relatively small portions. Basically, everything is down. Uh, so that 3.5% is pretty broad across the board with some things being a lot worse, but most of the economy is not hiring as many people or employing as many people as in the past. Okay, so that's that's definitely part of the story that's very disappointing. And let's talk about where people are hiring or where companies, I should say, are looking to hire people because this is a fascinating story. Where are there job openings? In other words, job uh, vacancies, I guess, is another word for it uh, that have been sort of posted, you know, online or wherever else and, and where they've communicated that, hey, we're looking to hire. What is the story there? So basically, openings are way up across the board. You know, the government tracks this every month. And if we compare to February 2020, right now, the private sector job openings are up 50% more than that, which is 50%? Yeah, it's enormous. That's incredible. Uh, There's 50% more available jobs looking to hire people than before the pandemic, even though the economy has not recovered all of the jobs that it lost in the pandemic. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's actually, and it's one of the things that makes this downturn in recovery so different from the past, because before what generally happened was job openings would fall and then they would stay down for a long time. Companies in general wouldn't lay a lot of people off. They basically just would hire fewer people. And then through attrition, they would shrink. That's how, you know, the early 2000s went. That's how the financial crisis went. This situation is completely different. Yeah, by the way, that earlier version, that is what you would expect too, right? When the economy is weak, it's sluggish, you're not going to have as many available jobs. Now you have the exact opposite. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, this is one of the reasons to be sort of optimistic earlier is that the number of job openings recovered quite quickly, even back in 2020, before the recent surge. There are reasons to be skeptical of this number. You know, it's very easy to post job openings now compared to the past. Employers that might not have thought about it would be like, well, we just can go to some job posting website or whatever. It's very easy. So it's not necessarily the case that all of these are active. I mean, there's been some sort of anecdotal reporting where people try to like go to the companies and see like what the terms are. They might not be that great, but still it's very positive that the openings are, are what they are. And um, unfortunately, one of the reasons I think is that a lot of people, so many people lost their jobs, right? We said like 30 million people lost their jobs uh, or became unemployed. So the actual job losses were higher because some people were switched elsewhere. So there's an enormous amount of all those links that existed before between employers and workers, they were all broken. A lot of businesses failed. And so now we're having this big reallocation and you know, resorting of, of, of things, and that's going to be potentially messy. It, it explains why so many businesses are trying to either prevent people from leaving or you know, trying to add staff. And so I think that's also a part of it, too, and it's sort of a, a more negative interpretation for like why there are so many job openings. Yeah, that, that's intriguing because it seems like it might connect to this overall relative reorientation of the economy away from services and towards goods to whatever extent that actually is happening because it suggests that there might be a lot of jobs that are not yet the right fit for the people coming from one part of the economy uh, into that new economy, right? That like eventually those jobs might be filled, but there might just be a brief period of transition for a lot of people because they might they might have to retrain to get into a new sector. They might have to move to a different part of the country. And so I wonder to what extent something like that is also showing up in the data, or for now at least, do we just kind of have to speculate? I think there's definitely an element of that. I mean, the thing that's interesting and I think kind of surprising 
because a lot of the news stories is like, oh, restaurants find it hard to hire waiters at, you know, $10 an hour. The, the, the sector that's actually seen the most increases in job openings by far is manufacturing. Like, it's not even close. We're talking about more than double the number of job openings now than there were before the pandemic. It's just absolutely massive. Manufacturing wow. is not that big a sector of the economy, but just the absolute increase in job openings in manufacturing is basically on par with, like, you know, healthcare or retail or, or you know, much bigger sectors that generally have more job openings because they go through more people and more churn. And so I think that's really dramatic. And I think it's you know, very consistent with what you're saying, this, this shift or desired shift to, you know, bulk up the manufacturing sector because there's greater demand for goods, but not enough people to, to do it all. Okay. And next up, I want to talk about people quitting their jobs and what's known as the quits rate, which is, I believe, roughly the share of people who quit their jobs in a given month. There's something fascinating about this, and I think we need to put it into the context of everything we just discussed. The economy has not yet re-employed as many people as it was employing before the pandemic, but there are parts of the economy, notably manufacturing, but also other parts of the economy, that are looking to hire a lot of people. And from what I understand, a lot of people have, in fact, been quitting their jobs to go take new jobs. And I want to stop to explain this for our listeners for a second, because I think the common understanding, and it's very and it's very sensible, of somebody quitting their jobs is somebody quitting their job is that something went badly. You know, you go to your boss, you hate the job, take this and shove it. I hate this, whatever. But actually, as uh, an indicator of the economy, it's actually quite a good thing. Economic analysts consider this to be a good thing. It suggests that there is a lot of confidence in the economy because if a lot of people are quitting their jobs, it means that they have new, perhaps better jobs to go to, to take instead. So give us a sense of what's happening with the quits rate and tell us what you, we should make of it. Yes, first of all, I completely agree. It's a very useful signal. I mean, people do surveys all the time about how you're feeling about the economy or whatever, but like you actually want to put your money where your mouth is. It's, I feel good enough about I can get a new job that's better than the one I have, that I'm going to quit something that I have that's currently paying me. I mean, that that is probably the biggest vote of confidence you can you can actually make in terms of your your view about the economy, way more than anything in any survey. And so... Hey, you made it yourself, by the way. You quit your job. Exactly. And, and you start I, something and I should new. Note, and again, it wasn't a, <laughs> it, it wasn't a situation of, of being unhappy. So there was a new opportunity that was, that was interesting. And so we I, maybe talk more later about sort of the dynamics of other people doing this, but, <laughs> of your of your uh, of your choices. Well, right. not not on me, but like the, <laughs> I'm, I'm the general entrepreneurship <laughs> kidding, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. But yeah, I mean, I, basically, the quit rate fell a lot during the pandemic because you know if you're not confident about if you think everything's collapsing, right? You want if you have a job, you know, so many people were losing jobs involuntarily. So if you had one, the last thing you're going to do is like, oh, now's a good time to quit and see if I can find the new one, right? That's a terrible idea. So the quit rate collapsed. But then, you know, things actually started coming back. And you get to sort of this spring, and the quit rate had basically gotten back to where it was. And then something really interesting happens, which is, you know, the economy really starts picking up. You get a lot of people getting vaccinated again, right? And so you see this huge upturn in quits. And we're now at the point where, again, it's, it's something like, I don't know, like 30% higher, I think, give or take, than where we were before uh, for, you know, the economy as a whole. And, and interestingly, you know, it's pretty correlated to the where openings are, right? So the manufacturing quit rate is like 62% higher than where it was before, which is way more than any other sector. So, you know, we don't have the data on whether people are leaving a sector for another sector versus, you know, one company to another company. 
but it's gone up a lot. It's gone up a lot also in, you know, bars and restaurants, you know, but really basically everything. There's, you know, relatively weak, quick growth in, in some parts of the economy, but like healthcare, construction, transportation, like it's all up, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent. Uh, and that's um, I just want to wait, 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 let's let's huge. explain what that statistic means. So you mentioned that the quits rate for manufacturing is like 60 percent higher than it was before. That means that the number of people or the share of employees in manufacturing each month uh, who quit their jobs has gone up 60 percent. That's astonishing. Yeah, right? the number of people quitting each month. That's right. So the, num- exactly. the total number of people quitting each month is like 62 percent higher now, give or take, than it was in February for manufacturing. And for the economy as a whole, it's like 25% or so. Yeah, that's that sounds 20%. like quite that sounds like quite an impressive jump. Yeah. In other words, that's it's a huge. lot more people quitting than were quitting before. That's right. Yeah. And what's the connection between uh, the sectors where people are quitting and the sectors that are hiring people or that are trying to hire people as signaled by all those job openings that they're posting? Yes, there's a pretty good relation there. I mean, the, the, the one, so as I said, manufacturing has the most biggest growth in job openings. They have the biggest increase in quits. So again, I think a lot of the, the openings are probably sort of backfilling for people who are leaving individual companies or what have you. Uh, there are a couple of like weird exceptions, right? Like construction, you see a lot of people quitting. You have not seen a big increase in job openings. I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, but in general, the sectors where you're seeing the biggest increase in openings and quits are, are pretty comparable. You know, um, healthcare is reasonably high, retail. Um, these are jobs also, I should note, that were extremely stressful over the past 18 months because uh, if you were employed, you were basically on the front lines, most likely to be getting infected and having to deal with, uh, you know, all the stress and trauma of that. And so you can understand people being burned out and maybe wanting to do something else or demanding at least higher compensation for what they endured. So um, a lot of things going on there, obviously. Okay. And I want to close this section by asking a very basic question, which is, what should we make of the idea that the economy itself, in terms of what it produces, is back to where it was before the pandemic, but it has not actually employed, gotten back to employing as many people as it was employing before the pandemic. And this seems especially hard to understand, given that there are parts of the economy that are posting tons of job openings, that a lot of people are quitting their jobs for presumably better jobs or because they have confidence that they'll be able to get new jobs. What is going on in terms of the economy getting back to its earlier state of output, of of what it makes, of the goods and services that it offers versus the jobs that it has recovered, which are not actually back to where it was before. And frankly, at six million short, that's quite a big gap that needs to still be filled. Uh, What's the best story we can tell there? So a lot of this is sort of an artifact of how things are counted. And basically, the, the thing is that according to the way the government statistics are compiled, the stuff that those people who are currently not working were doing, those activities just weren't that valuable, apparently, um, in the statistics compared to what other people in mon- are doing. In monetary terms. In, in monetary words. terms. You're right. not making a subjective yeah, I'm not, value I'm not, judgment. Right. I'm not just right. saying like describing what people's, how much right. they sell for. Right. Yeah. Just in terms of how the government adds up these data. And so the result being that it had a relatively small impact. Um, and then on the other hand, people who are doing things that are considered to be very high value by the statistical agencies, those activities ended up growing by enough to compensate. 
And so even though employment, as we said, is down about, you know, three and a half percent or so, total economic output is up one and a half percent. Some of this, I think, reflects genuine productivity gains, genuine innovations and efficiency improvements that we've had to learn how to do during the pandemic. I think working from home has been hard for some people, but I think it's also been very helpful in a lot of ways in terms of you don't have to commute anymore. Uh, you know, quite frankly, it also allows people to work more hours, which maybe is not great, but I mean, it's a, it's a thing that happens. You know, there are various efficiency gains in terms of how we get goods delivered to us, which is, you know, it doesn't as many, require as many people as if you go to a store. In-store checkout is very different now compared to how it used to be in terms, you know, the use of QR scanners with restaurants. I mean, there are a lot of things that have happened that I think it's reasonable to say we actually have gotten more efficient. To me, that means that there's just more room for the economy to grow as a whole because we can then re-employ, you know, those other people and then we can just keep doing more stuff and take advantage of, you know, the efficiency gains that we've had. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's basically how we explain this disconnect. So there's two basic reasons then. One is a simple methodological issue of how the sort of size of the economy is calculated. And then second, there are some parts of the economy, you mentioned a few of them, like the restaurant sector, that are finding ways to get more out of their existing workers, partly because they've employed like machines, automation, QR codes in the case of restaurants, uh, checkout counters maybe are being used more instead of cashiers at, at stores, things of that nature. And what you're saying is that to whatever extent that second part, the part of the economy becoming a little bit more efficient, is what's responsible here, that's quite a hopeful sign for the future because it suggests that when the economy does get back to re-employing all the people that it had been employing, it will just be making that much more stuff because it has all of these new techniques. And that could be a great story. It's just that in the meantime, it means that they have not, that these businesses have not yet re-employed all of the people that they employed before. Is that basically correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. Let's move on now to wages, uh, what people are getting paid for the jobs that they do, the people, of course, who are fortunate enough to be employed right now. So in very general, basic terms, what can we say about how much people are making? Are they making more, less, a lot more, a little more than they were making before the pandemic? What's the story there? So in general, the answer is a lot more. Obviously, a lot of variation, but the numbers we have is that people are making a lot more money. Um, the most straightforward way to look at this is, you know, every month the government publishes data on the total amount of money spent by companies on wages and salaries. And that is about 7% higher as of September 2021 than it was in February 2020, which is a lot because we know that employment was down. So that means that the average person basically making 10% more by this measure, which is a lot. And and is that adjusted for inflation or is that the no, just it is the not. nominal amount? It okay. is not. Now, that having okay. been said, inflation has not been 10%. I mean, we haven't had prices on the whole and rise by 10% since February 2020. So there's definitely like real gains. And in fact, the pace of wage growth is the best it's been in a very long time. Wow. So if you're if you're employed, then there's a chance that you're actually not just making more money than you were before the pandemic, but that actually your salary or your wage has gone up at a faster pace than it was in the years before the pandemic. Yeah, it's a weird outcome because sort of the common sense approach people usually would take to this sort of thing is that wage growth is going to be faster when the unemployment rate is lower and more people have jobs and companies are you know, bidding more because, you know, there's a big pool of people who would like jobs but isn't employed. 
this is not how things are working. The wage growth is consistent with the data we've seen on things like job openings and stuff. So that's consistent and quits, which suggests the labor market is very strong. But it is weird that you then still have so many people unemployed, underemployed compared to before. No firm conclusions yet on that then. Would you say that that still remains a little bit of a mystery? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of the best arguments I've heard essentially is that a lot of those not all, but a lot of the 6 million people, give or take, are people who are not looking actively for a job. And there might be reasons, there are a couple of reasons you might think of. I mean, it's hard to find childcare. A lot of schools are closed or were closed. You might be worried about health risks. You know, th- th- these kinds of factors, there are a lot of people who just have, you know, we can get to it more later, but like people have more money now. So like they maybe, maybe they can afford to take some time off to look for something that's a better fit for them. Okay, and and from what you said there, Matt, there are sort of good and bad societal reasons then for people not going back to work. So I think the bad societal reasons are, of course, people are struggling to get childcare. So even if they wanted to take a job and a job was available and it pays a lot, if they can't get care for their child, then they still may not be able to take it. On the other side, a decent societal reason for people not going back to work is if they just don't want to take a crummy job, either because it didn't pay as much and still isn't paying as much as they'd like, or if the job itself is potentially a dangerous job, has bad working conditions. I think that obviously matters a lot, especially now in the middle of a pandemic. And so if they have enough savings to wait until there is a better job, or even for the job that they would have otherwise taken to become a better job, you know, a safer place that maybe pays more. That's a decent societal reason uh, for people not to be going back to work. And so there could be a mix of those two different kinds of things, right? Right. I, I think we can sort of zoom out and say, you know, people would always be willing to take a job if, you know, we made it that not having a job would lead you to, you know, poverty and destitution. I mean, that doesn't mean you should do that, obviously. I mean, there, you know, it's good that we have, you know, safety nets and floors on people's living standards that so they're not, you know, we don't want forced labor or anything like that. But from an employer's perspective, you can see how some people are complaining about, you know, oh, it's too bad that, you know, workers don't have to take this job. I think there may be an element to this where employers or some employers may need to sort of adjust their expectations and, and learn and think through about, you know, how things might be different than the, the what they were used to over the past 10 years. Oh, look at that. Employers, companies have to adjust their expectations for a change. We've had like decades where it was everybody telling workers that they had to adjust their expectations. You know, well, the economy changes and now maybe some businesses have to find a way to compete with each other. No bad thing, says this guy. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good thing. Um, I think it's something, though, that may it may take a little time, unfortunately, but I think that may also be another you know, explanation for how all the numbers we're seeing fit together. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, you mentioned that wage gains are going up across the board. Uh, Do you mean to say that also uh, traditionally lower income folks are also seeing wage gains and that these higher wages and higher salaries are not just going to people in higher income jobs? Yeah, that's right. So we don't really have good high-frequency data based on like how much someone is making, but we do have data based on the industry, and we know what the average wages are within an industry. And so... Some industries pay the average worker more than other right. industries, you're right. saying, right? So, okay. for example, the sort of the leisure and hospitality sector, which is mostly things like bars, restaurants, hotels, um, that is one of the lower-paid sectors of the economy. It's also the one that, and, and it's a big one, uh, it, it's also a sector that's had some of the most dramatic wage increases over the course of this year. And we're talking basically from the beginning of 2021 until now, we're talking annualized wage gains of like 20%, which 
which is extraordinary. That's never happened in like since the the end of World War II or whatever. I mean, this is huge. Every sector has done well, but I mean, the biggest gains have been there. They've been in things like education and, and in retail and the sectors that tend to be lower paid than some of the other sectors of the economy. You haven't seen huge wage gains in manufacturing, which I think is interesting given what we know about how many people are quitting manufacturing, how many job openings are, which again, I think maybe employers need to adjust if, if they're unsatisfied with those outcomes. But yeah, I mean, the wage gains are, are, are huge. There's a term in economics uh, for the labor market when it looks like the labor market is working well for workers specifically, which is that the labor market is tight. And what it's meant to describe is a situation where there's so much demand for workers. Businesses really need workers, and so they start competing with each other to hire those workers. And the way that they compete is by raising wages and salaries, sometimes offering better benefits, offering things to workers that maybe they would not have offered in the past, like on-the-job training. Would you right now describe the labor market as tight based on all the analysis that you just gave us? So in general, I would say yes. I mean, the fact that we're seeing pay going up as much as we have is probably the single best indicator that, in fact, the job market is tight. You know, that having been said, there are some nuances to be aware of. It really, what sector you're looking at, it can depend. Some jobs might be objectively worse compared to what you would have thought before the pandemic because of the risk of getting a disease. So you might want something to compensate you for that. You know, there's also issues of a lot of jobs might be available, but, you know, again, like the pay might not be that great. So it, it's tricky to say, I mean, I would say in general, the answer is yes, but, you know, it's not as if any random person who is looking at what their current job is and thinks that they should just quit and get a better one. I mean, obviously, you should always be looking and seeing what's out there. But even though things are really good, it's not as if it's so tight that any warm body will uh, will do. You, you know, the, the People should be um, careful. But it, it's probably the tightest it's been in many ways for a very long time, with the caveat that we're still having far fewer people employed than in the past relative to the population, which is kind of a weird wrinkle and I think reflects some underlying and, and this is true for, like, for across all sectors of the economy, which I think reflects some kind of underlying weakness that remains. Matt, let's uh, talk about inflation now, because this is something that I think affects just about everybody. What can we say about how much stuff costs now relative to how much it cost before the pandemic? Has the price of stuff gone up by a lot? So in general, prices are higher. There are a lot of nuances if you want to get into like how you compile these things. I mean, basically... There's I a lot of not. different stuff. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Absolutely so we do don't, not. We don't know. But I mean, the short version is there are a lot of different stuff that people would choose to buy. Everyone has different tastes and preferences and needs. The things that they get are different depending on where you are. I mean, like housing and rent are often one of people's biggest expenses. That's very, you know, the trends there you're seeing are very different. So the national average price increase, sort of like four or five, six percent. But individual people might be seeing very, very different numbers in that in both directions, depending on their specific circumstances. It depends on what you buy specifically. Right. Not everything yeah. else, not everything goes up by the right. same amount, right. right? When we say that prices right now are 4 to 6% higher than they were a year ago, that's not to say that literally everything you buy has gone up by 4 to 6%. Some things might have gone down in price, some things might have gone way way up in price a lot more than that. But that's that is a general place to start and now we'll get into a little, a little bit more detail. So Here's one kind of interesting wrinkle from just the last roughly half year or so. 
When we say that right now prices are about 4 to 6% higher than they were a year ago, that's one thing. And by the way, that, that is faster price growth than we had before the pandemic, when for years prices would usually go up by somewhere between 1.5% to 2%, right around there, right? So that is faster price growth. But a lot of that price growth took place earlier this year. And actually, for the last roughly five or six months, the prices that you've seen from month to month, the increase in those prices has actually been falling, right? doesn't mean that prices have been falling, but the increase in prices from month to month have been falling for roughly the last half year. So how do we reconcile these two things, that prices right now are up a lot from what they were a year ago, but the rise in those prices for about the last half year is actually falling now. So what is the story we should take away from those two trends together? So this is something I've been covering pretty regularly on, on the overshoot. So anyone who's interested in, in nice a little more plug. detail. It's been a while since exactly. we plugged the overshoot. Got to get that in from time to time. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Plenty of charts and, <laughs> and so forth. But you can basically break out, and the government will give you the, the data are all available, to sort of break out component by component what is actually driving the aggregate price increase. And it's very helpful for seeing like what is going on answering this question. And the basic answer is that most prices have not been rising particularly quickly. Some have actually been rising slower than usual. But you have enough of components, it's sort of like 30% of the total, uh, that have had sort of unusual things happen over the course of this year. And again, as you said, like basically those factors sort of peaked back in June. And that's been leading to this big spike in overall prices. But then as those idiosyncratic things recede, we've seen inflation on the month-to-month basis coming back. And most of these things we can point to, in fact, all of them really, are all sort of sort of artifacts of the pandemic or other sort of weird things that have happened. Can you give a few examples of that? When you say these idiosyncratic weird things that have happened, especially in the earlier part of this year, what specifically was it that went way up in price because of the pandemic that's sort of leading to these numbers uh, being affected so much, these overall numbers? Basically, anything involving cars uh, is, is <laughs> like the, the very simple version. And so, you know, I mentioned before, right, that like every automaker shut down their plants completely back in April 2020 and they turned them back on. Now, what's interesting is that even though it turned out that people really wanted to buy cars, either because they didn't want to take public transit anymore or just because they had more money and, you know, weren't going out to eat or whatever, car companies just persistently did not make enough to meet demand because I guess they were cautious about, you know, they, they were burned in the past, right, of, of demand being slow to come back. So they thought that if they, they stopped making enough cars to meet demand because they frankly just didn't think that there would be enough demand for their cars. That's they, right. they expected not as many people to be buying cars as their earlier pre-pandemic projections, so they just didn't make enough cars. And so, of course, when you have a limited supply of something, in this case cars, the price tends to go up because a lot of people actually did show up and wanted to buy cars, and it turned out there weren't enough cars. Is that what happened? Well, what's interesting is it didn't, it didn't show up immediately because there are a couple two other things here that are really interesting. So that happened. And at the time, it wasn't a problem because at the same time, you had rental car companies. And they said, well, A, we don't have money because no one's renting a car and we borrowed a lot of money to you know, finance our fleets. So they just sold their fleets. And so that basically flooded the used car market. So even though there weren't as many new cars, it wasn't a problem. And so for consumers to buy, if you wanted to buy a car, it was actually fine. 
But you then get later into 2020, and then two problems happen. One is that car companies finally realize they actually do want to start making more cars, but because they'd canceled orders for chips with the you know companies that make chips that go in the cars, and they're not they're not that many of those companies, and they have a lot of other, quite frankly, more high-priority customers than car companies. You're saying that it got to the point where car companies did want to start making more cars, but because of the decisions they made earlier in the pandemic, they had not ordered enough of the semiconductor chips that are needed to make cars. And so basically the car companies were out of luck for a while. They just could not make enough cars because they'd made this, in hindsight, terrible decision not to order enough semiconductor chips. Is that basically the story? That's that's basically right. And that's the problem that started basically the end of 2020, this particular situation where they actually just couldn't get enough chips. And then there's another element here, which is that the car rental companies then realize actually demand is coming back. And this was a surprise to them. And so, but they, but then they realized, well, we just sold all of our cars. So, <laughs> A, they had to raise the price of renting a car by a lot. And so that's actually probably, of all the things that you look at in the, in the, the prices are tight, probably the one that went up the most actually is the price of car rental. It's still like 45% higher than it was before the pandemic, which is extraordinary. And on top of that, they then basically said, we're going to buy every used car we can find. And so, they started just find, bidding them up at auctions and you, people get unsolicited phone calls and stuff. And the price of used cars then started going up really dramatically because rental car companies were trying to buy them. And so it turns out that these three components, n- new cars, used cars, and then car rental, these are not that much stuff, right? But that's like, I don't know, a third to half of the, the increase in total inflation rate compared to what it was before. I mean, it's enormous. So that's just an example of something. It's clearly not like an economy-wide symptom of whatever, but just like an idiosyncratic thing we can blame on specific response to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me emphasize what you just said. When you said it's not that much stuff, you mean as a share of the overall economy, we're not talking about like a really significant industry here. I mean, it's it's there and it's meaningful, but it's not enormous. But the prices for just these three car-related items went up by so much that they accounted for, what did you say, a third of the overall rise in inflation? I mean, that's a a disproportionate amount. Okay. So if you don't drive a car or you don't need a new car, right, or or a used car or anything like that, and you're not planning any road trips, you get to basically skip that part of the inflationary surge. It doesn't really affect you, right? Right. Okay, great. So that's that's cars. What else has gone up in price over, you know, the last year to 18 months or so that that is notable, that is worth at least mentioning here? We don't have to get into the specific sure. story. I just want to know what what it is. So the other things that have been big are things that, you know, again, are you can we can explain in terms of the consequence of the pandemic. So appliances. There's a category called major appliances, you know, washing machines, dishwashers, refrigerators. That's up a lot. It's about 20% since prices February 2020. Prices are up 20%. Yeah, okay. Also, you know, actual demand, you know, real purchases of the units, but also prices, um, which is kind of remarkable because there'd been a very long-term downtrend in these prices. But because people are stuck at home, people are spending a lot on home remodeling, people are moving a lot, right? There's a huge increase in people buying houses and moving. All those things are going to lead to a big increase in demand for appliances, and that showed up in prices. Unsurprisingly, you have this massive disruption from the pandemic, that affects our lives in really profound ways and what we're able to do, what we want to do. And that's had really big impact on a lot of different prices of things because people want more of something and less of something else. And so it's not a surprise, the consequence of this, that we're seeing this, this volatility. I mean, I think from that context, personally, I think that the amount of inflation we've seen overall 
is it's kind of surprising actually how little it's been, how stable as a whole things have been compared to pre-pandemic, considering how much disruption there's been. Why, why is that? Why is that surprising to you? I mean, just because so much has happened. Like, if you told someone in you know January of 2020, yeah, we're gonna have a global pandemic that shuts down the entire global economy, that kills globally probably more than 10 million people, that does all this stuff that we still don't have cures for. I mean, there's treatments of various ways or whatever, but it changes how much you want to be around other people being inside versus outside, whether you want to commute or not. I mean, it seems to me that would lead to sort of all sorts of massive changes that would be very, have a huge impact on all sorts of things. And the fact that, I mean, it has had a huge impact. And yet, in terms of one particular measure that we have, which is the weighted average price of everything, actually hasn't had that much of an impact. I mean, there's been an impact, uh, but it's not nearly as much as I would have, one might have guessed. Do you want to be bold and, and make a, a prediction about what's happening with inflation now? You know, do, do you see the, if not a prediction, a, a trend over the next, you know, several months to uh, half a year or so? I mean, or do you think that that decline in month-to-month inflation of the last half a year is likely to continue? So I'll make a contingent prediction, which is that assuming the pandemic doesn't get a lot worse that the forces that made certain items particularly expensive will recede. And so you will hopefully see a shift from goods to services, and that will probably moderate overall inflation. I think the caveat, though, tied to what we were saying earlier, is because so many people have so much more money than before, if they're going to buy more stuff, we have a lot of latent productive capacity, both in this country and globally, to meet that demand. But to the extent that we don't, that's going to show up in higher prices. And so it'll be interesting to see how those those forces play out. Okay, Matt, earlier we talked about how there was this shift in what people were buying relatively in the direction of buying more goods and fewer services. What about the effects of trends in global trade? Is there a story there that matters a lot for the U.S. economy in terms of what we're buying from each other versus what we're buying from abroad? And of course, correspondingly, what we're selling to each other and what we're selling to folks abroad. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the the short version is, I think we were saying earlier, manufacturing production in the U.S. is up somewhere between sort of zero to three, depending on how you count it, percent. But the demand for goods by American consumers, and if you look at the demand for, you know, business equipment by businesses, is up way more than that. You know, like 20, 30 (laughs) percent. So that difference has to come from somewhere. And the answer is it's coming from other countries. And the trade deficit has gone up a lot as a consequence, um, particularly the on trade goods. trade deficit is how much more we buy from abroad right. than we sell to people abroad, right. roughly. That's right. roughly yeah, what that's, that is. Yeah. That's okay. basically, yeah, that's right. So okay. basically, we're buying way more stuff from people abroad than we used to. Right. And also important is that we're also selling less stuff because part of the thing that's interesting is that the U.S. government's response to the economic consequences of the pandemic was so much more dramatic and I would say more effective than what other countries did, that Americans have a lot more money to spend and people in other countries don't to the same extent. And so what that means is that even though American companies would be willing to make things to sell to other people, they don't necessarily have the money to do that. There are other sort of idiosyncratic factors like a lot of what we sell to foreigners are airplanes and, you know, air travel is a thing that's down. So like that's just bad luck. But you put those things together and that's a, a lot of it. So the trade deficit has gotten a lot bigger, and you just had a mismatch there. On the services side, too, one of the big things that, in general, Americans have had the advantage of in terms of, of trade is, like, people will come to this country either on vacation or for study abroad. 
But if your colleges are shut, and also, I mean, the the government put up and the tourism a, sector also, right. I'm sure, is suffering. Right, exactly. Your tourism sector, right? So like that, and there had been. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming those rules are changed, but I, I know that uh, the Trump administration put rules on foreign students in terms of making it harder for them to come in during the pandemic. So like that's going to be a big drag. So. Yeah, I mean, basically, the situation is that the American consumer has recovered a lot more than consumers elsewhere. That's affected American producers, which is why GDP hasn't grown to the same extent as normal people's, you know, actual living standards because they're consuming so much more. From abroad. Yeah, yeah it's a sort lot of it's made up abroad, the gap. Yeah. A lot of it's coming from abroad, so it's sort of made up the gap. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. Uh, We talked earlier also about changes in terms of wage growth and how it seems like that has been quite broad across the economy. It's not just that people who already made a lot of money are making even more, that actually there have been quite healthy wage and salary gains for people who don't make a lot of money. I want to now also talk about racial and ethnic inequality and how that might be changing in the pandemic. I want to look at this from two angles. First, we'll talk about jobs, and then we'll talk about wages. So I'll talk about jobs for a second, Matt, and then and then I'll throw it to you for the wages part. And here's the thing I want to focus on. Right now, the unemployment rates for white workers and for Asian workers are pretty low. They're down close to about 4%. For Hispanic workers, it's up closer to 6% unemployment. So that's one and a half times the unemployment rate of white workers. And then for black workers, it's twice as high. It's up close to 8% unemployment, which is not great. And the point I want to make is that those ratios, the ratio of the Hispanic unemployment rate being one and a half times higher than the white unemployment rate, and then the black unemployment rate being two times higher, well, those ratios are the same now as they were before the pandemic, and they are also historically persistent ratios. In other words, if you go back decades, that is roughly where these ratios have always been. And I think there's a couple of things to say here. One is that it means that recessions, like the COVID recession, end up being worse for Black and Hispanic workers because of those already existing inequalities. And I think there's a simple way to think about this. So if unemployment triples for everybody, for everyone in every demographic group, well, it means that the unemployment rate is going to go up a lot more for Black and Hispanic workers precisely because there was already more unemployment to begin with. And that, in fact, did happen in the COVID pandemic. And it's also another reason why it's important for the labor market to fully recover. And then second, in times when the labor market does get really strong, in the past, I mean, those employment gaps between white workers and black and Hispanic workers, they do start to shrink. They don't go away. All right. You'd probably need other structural fixes to the economy for those gaps to disappear completely. But the gaps do get smaller when the labor market is really healthy, when it gets really hot. And right now, those gaps are not smaller than they were before. So I I just think that suggests that the labor market does still have some way to go. And I also, by the way, just want to reiterate that these are only economic trends we're following here, general economic trends, you know, in terms of surviving the pandemic, as we discussed in last week's episode with Ann Case and with Angus Deaton, mortality rates did go up more for black and Hispanic people. So inequality by that measure absolutely 
did go up. So, Matt, that is what's happening on the employment side. And I'd asked you to previously look up the data on wages and wage gaps that exist between these various demographic groups. So what are the trends there? I guess I would generally say it was kind of surprising is that the, the, the pandemic hasn't really done anything to racial inequality in terms of employment or income that would be surprising given just that it was a downturn. There wasn't anything special about the pandemic in that regard, that in terms of the gaps in the rates, the behavior of, of unemployment, as we were discussing, was sort of in line with prior trends. And same thing we're looking at with, with wages, that the differences in wages, which are quite large, were basically the same before the pandemic as they are now. Uh, so the, the government is looks at median weekly wages, so sort of the, the typical person, not the average, but like the typical Asian American makes about 30% more than the typical white American, and the typical white American makes about 30% more than both the typical black or Hispanic American, who both make about the same, Okay, is what the data show. Now, there's a little wrinkle here, which is the employment rates are different among these groups. Right. So we're just talking about people who are employed and have wages, right? right. But there are employment gaps, right. and there are also, also wage gaps between right. those groups. Sure. Okay. Right. And these data are only for full-time employees. So if like you have one group of people who is more likely to be employed part-time, you're going to see differences as well. Okay, so to sum all this up, for both the employment gaps and the wage gaps, the inequalities that already existed before the pandemic very much remained in place. And they didn't get worse, but they also didn't get better. And in the case of employment, at least, those inequalities meant that the recession ended up hitting black and Hispanic workers especially hard. I should note also that we didn't look at the situation for Native American workers, partly because their total population is small enough that it's just hard to get real-time data that's comparable to what we have for other groups. But there has been survey data that shows that they also had a very rough time of it as well. Okay. Well, uh, I want to go into the last category, which is savings. And this is something you touched on earlier, that some people do have more money, more more in savings than before, if not in cash, than in some kind of wealth. And that perhaps you'd mention this in the context of people perhaps not taking a job yet um, because they're waiting for a better job and they can afford to do that right now because they have more money. So what can we say about how much more or less money some people have now versus before the pandemic started? So basically everyone has more money. Uh, and oh, a lot great. more money. Yeah. I mean, as far as we can tell <laughs> with the data, like it's just really broad based. The net worth of American households as a whole is up about 20% since the end of 2019, which again, you were to tell someone at the end of 2019 what was going to happen in terms of the death and devastation and disruption and be like, oh, and guess what? We're all going to be 20% richer. Boy, you know, probably he's pretty surprised. I would have been surprised. Yeah. And then that's what's happened. So, like, and that's $25 trillion um, for among US households, which is a lot. Now, of course, it happens to be the case that the bulk of those gains have gone to people who were at the top of the income distribution. Um, but even so, people lower down are still 20% richer or so than they were before. Let's stay, stay on that, stay on that of course uh, point that you just made. When you sure. say that, of course, most of these gains are going to go to people who already make more money, uh, we should explain that because we've also just said that in terms of how much income people have been bringing in since the pandemic started, that actually that's been quite broad-based and that even lower-income folks have also made more money. But what you're saying here is that in terms of how much money left over they had, savings, overall wealth, that the increase in the wealth has gone more towards rich people than it has 
for people a little bit further down the spectrum of wealth and, and income. So explain the sort of disconnect between those two things. Sure. So everyone starts with different amounts of money or different amounts of assets. Like, let's say it's all stocks or whatever, right? Because stocks are the biggest category in, in that moved here. And then stock prices all go up by 20%. Then the people who had the most stocks to start with are going to have most of the gains. So everyone will be 20% better off. But if people who have more of that stuff that went up 20%, and that's basically what happened with, you know, in this situation, that's the big thing. Housing was another big category. Housing wealth, unlike stock market wealth, is much more evenly distributed. I mean, it's still skewed towards higher income people, but it's much more evenly distributed. So you've still seen really big gains for people, you know, in the middle or even lower end of the income distribution. And then there's something else that happened that was really interesting, which is that people's savings in terms of like bank deposits and cash and stuff like this actually went up a lot, like $4 trillion, which obviously is not a big chunk of the $25 trillion, but it's really big compared to what people had before. And I mean, it's it's basically for a lot of people been, has been, you know, life-changing. And that is a function of really kind of two things. One is that people just have been spent, in, until recently, people have been spending a lot less money than they were before the pandemic and would have been based on their sort of underlying income growth because a lot of stuff just wasn't available. Like you couldn't go to a restaurant. You wouldn't want to hire a babysitter for a night out at the movies. Like these things just weren't options that you'd want to be doing. You wouldn't want to go on a plane and book a hotel somewhere. Like, And so that meant that you had a lot of extra money. And people did spend more on goods to partly offset the impact, but it wasn't a one-for-one shift. And so the result is that total amount of spending was relatively low. So you had more money left over because incomes were still right. were still That's going right. up. So you just had more money in savings left over because you were spending less. Okay. And then on top of that, you have really massive infusions of cash from the fact that the government is is really being very aggressive and trying to support household incomes. So there are those economic impact payments, you know, the checks that of various amounts people got, whether it's two thousand stimulus checks, basically. That's what everybody calls them. Okay, the government put out multiple rounds of stimulus checks, and I know that the framing of that is a little bit controversial, but we don't have to get into that. Yeah. Basically, the government send everybody money. Right. Right. Yeah, a lot of people. I don't like money. the idea of their stimulus check, but yes, I agree. They send people money. <laughs> okay. They 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 dramatically increased unemployment insurance to make it much better than it was before. Like unemployment insurance is generally designed to make being unemployed terrible so that you get a new job, which makes sense if it's easy to get a job, but it makes no sense if you have a pandemic. And so Congress actually did a reasonable thing, which was they added a lot of money so that it was not so bad. That was a huge amount of money that people got. You had things like student debt, interest payment, um, not not, not forgiveness, but yeah, suspension. You had the forgivable loans to small businesses that allowed them to keep people on the workforce. All these other things, there was increased, there was money given to hospitals and stuff, a lot of money. And, And what's interesting is that up until basically this month, on the whole, that money was saved completely. Like, the, 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 it didn't show up in terms of higher consumer spending. Maybe it went into, into things that you wouldn't call savings, like, you know, cryptocurrency or whatever. But in terms of the way the government classifies saving versus consumption, it, it was saved. So you combine these factors of asset prices went up a lot, and you have the government giving people a lot of money, and you have people spending less money. The net effect is that we have this huge increase in, in savings and wealth which has been a really, you know, positive outcome. Okay, and Matt, my last question is this. We've just spent all this time sort of explaining how the economy is doing, and we've come at it from so many different angles. What is something that you think is a big misunderstanding about the economy and where it is right now? Something that you think is really important and meaningful, but that maybe a lot of people out there just don't 
get, whether because it's surprising or because it's just tricky to understand. So one thing I think is really interesting and surprising and encouraging is that we've actually seen, I think, a real surge in dynamism in the economy. And we've seen some of that we talked about in terms of people changing jobs, but also I think what's really counterintuitive and really fantastic is the, the rate of entrepreneurship. And, you know, the government tracks this. They publish these data literally every week. But people, you know, they apply to the IRS to get a business tax ID. And you can see. Oh, you know, uh, yeah. What, Amy Keene, executive producer and I, we have one for this new business we started. So, yeah, I've, you know, I want we, to. So, the, yeah, you know, all right. We, yeah. we've all contributed to this figure. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> and what's wild is how much it just exploded during the pandemic. So basically what happened initially, and I remember writing about at my old job in April of 2020, was that it ticked down a lot. And the big concern that I and a lot of other people had was we saw this after the financial crisis, that entrepreneurship ticked down. And that, how much, I don't know, but it probably was a contributor to why growth after the financial crisis was so disappointing. Or whether it was a contributor or reflected it, regardless, it's, it's not a good sign that people were so unwilling to start businesses compared to the past. And that's initially what you saw in March and April of 2020. But then you start getting into like the late spring and the summer, and there's this massive uptick. And at first, it's just sort of catching up to where you know, it would have been. But then you start seeing like a lot of people are just creating new businesses. And so, and then it just accelerates into 2021. So you look at now, you know, we're almost done with 2021. The amount of new business applications that have been filed so far this year compared to the same amount of time in 2019, it's up by more than 50%. I mean, that's extraordinary. And if you even zoom in on sort of a subcategory, you know, the one that does not include me, but may or may not include you, which is the ones that are likely to actually, you know, have wages and employ people, um, that's still up by like a third, which is enormous. You know, you have to go way far back in the data to see that. It's just extraordinary. And, you know, that I think is really encouraging for what it could mean for longer term growth of the economy and the dynamics in the economy. Because if you are worried about stagnation and from lack of competition and, and, you know, a couple of big businesses just kind of sitting on their laurels or what have you, or you simply think that entrepreneurship is a is a sign of the fact the economy is doing well enough to people have the confidence to start businesses. Either way, the fact that you're seeing this many applications for businesses at this kind of rate, and it's not ta- trailing off at all if you look where we are in the year, is really great, encouraging news. And so I think if I pick one data point to be really excited about and, and you know, bullish on the U.S. economy, I think that would be that. The startup rate, yeah. It's uh, it's remarkable what's happened in terms of people starting new businesses. And I was going to say that this is something that, as you note, could have all kinds of wonderful benefits for the economy overall. But it also has terrific, I think, psychic benefits for the people who are engaging in this entrepreneurship. It shows that, like you said, they are confident enough to be taking risks, to be sort of designing their own workdays and what they do with their careers and in their professions. These are all things that have, you know, huge economic potential benefits, but it's also something that I think is great for the people who, you know, who want to try it, right? So I, I, I think that is also very encouraging. So to sum everything up, uh, if we can try to do that, the economy itself has returned to where it was before the pandemic in terms of output, in terms of what it makes, in terms of goods and services. It has not rehired everybody in the same numbers as it was employing before the pandemic. But there's very interesting things happening inside of the labor market. So in some parts of the economy, for example, there are businesses that really want to hire people. And there's people who are, in fact, quitting their jobs to go take those new jobs. That's a good thing. Wage growth has been quite healthy. 
inflation has been, it must be said, higher than it was before the pandemic, but it's not super out of control. And a lot of the inflation is concentrated in just a few parts of the economy. So it's not like this widespread thing. And in fact, there are some parts of the economy where inflation is actually lower than it was before and where there might even be falling prices. So that's important to note. Uh, There is more dynamism than there was before, which is itself, I think, an encouraging sign. And in terms of racial and ethnic inequality, it's it seems like it's a little bit early to tell exactly what the lasting effect of the pandemic might be. Because right now it seems like the inequalities that existed before are still there. They certainly haven't gotten any better. But the ratios in terms of the unemployment gaps and in terms of the pay gaps seem about the same as they were before the pandemic, which again is very different from the actual health consequences of the pandemic, which have been disproportionately devastating, I think, for Black and Latino communities in particular. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of my summary of what's happening in the economy. Is there anything else important that I, that I left out there? And people are a lot richer. That's the other one. And people have more money. Yes, yeah. overall, people have more money now, which is maybe the most surprising thing of all. Of course, Amy Keene, executive producer, and I, we sunk all our money into this business, so we have no money. But, you know, hopefully a lot of other people have more money. You, you, you have, you have equity money. in the business. Yeah, we do have equity in the business, and I guess it depends on how you how much you value the business at. So, you know, we'll, we'll use some creative mental accounting to convince ourselves that we are definitely richer than before. Uh, and I hope you, Matt, uh, are richer than before as well. Not just in money, but in terms of health and, you know, your own happiness and sanity and, and everything else. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, man. This was great. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And that's our show for this week. But again, please go to Matt's excellent Substack. It's a newsletter called The Overshoot. And he's already got a post that's live right now that pairs with this episode and also just adds lots more details and beautiful charts and all-around excellent data sleuthing or data sleuthery. Sleuth hounding, maybe? I'm not sure how to say it, but it's definitely got lots of great data, so go check it out. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. And speaking of data points, here's one. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Amy is awesome. An awesome business partner. Seriously, that was in the jobs report. Take my word for it. And thanks also to Adrian Lilly for sound engineering today's extra long episode and our music, our chill theme music, as a listener recently described it, is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. By the way, if there is a particular topic or a particular guest that you'd like to hear on The New Bazaar, feel free to email us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm also on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. And thanks again, as always, for listening. We'll see you next week.